Welcome. Thanks for being here today. Um, and again, we continue to express our gratitude for your willingness to bear with the dust and the mess and the tightness for the next several weeks. We are progressing, um, but it will continue to be like this for the next couple of months. But we are spending, if you were with us last week, you're aware of this, but we're spending a few weeks talking in some detail about our ecclesiology. So ecclesiology is just a fancy theological, well, it's not even that fancy, I guess. It's a theological word that refers to the study of the church, who we are, what we do, and so on. So we are talking a bit about a proper theology of the church this month, but we want that conversation to also get a bit more pointed as we consider how we hope a proper theology of the church then will play out in the context of our faith community that we call Solid Rock. So again, this is how we sum up our purpose as a church or how we are hoping and seeking to put that into practice day in and day out. I'll read through it. As a missional community, as a church, as a a gathering of followers of Jesus, as a missional community following Jesus Christ, we are seeking to participate in the restorative work of God. And we do that in four distinct ways, or we hope to do that in four distinct ways, by engaging in our surrounding culture, caring about each other's journey, discovering wholeness, and encountering the sacred. So last week, we spent our time focusing on the missional component of that statement. Today, we turn our focus to the community piece. And I think as we consider some of these things, as we do each year around this time of the year, it becomes quite clear that there isn't anything really unique about our purpose. Um, This is common to most churches around the globe. These are the things that are, are close to our hearts. So this is not an attempt to distinguish us from other churches. This is just how we hope to put some of these values into practice. So let's talk a bit today about the church as community, what that means and maybe what it doesn't mean. Sharon Ketchum wrote a book a couple of years ago called Reciprocal Church, where she essentially more or less asks this series of questions. She asks, is the church superfluous? Is it supportive or is it essential? Is it a vital thing for followers of Jesus to be a part of? Which maybe sounds like um, an obvious, a question with obvious answers, but we'll we'll work our way through with that. Is it superfluous? I mean, it's fine if you want to be, if you choose to be a part of that, but ultimately it's unnecessary, even for a Christian, which maybe sounds like a strange and even an absurd position, but it's not at all uncommon. It's the thought that you can be a Christian on your own without being connected, without being a part of a larger body, of a larger gathering of believers. So is it superfluous? Is it supportive? It's a good thing. It's something that we should seek to be a part of as long as it is meeting a perceived need that we have. And as soon as it stops fulfilling a perceived need that I might have, well, then I can check out. I I don't have any need to stick around when it stops meeting that need that I understand I have. So is it supportive? This is sort of the customer 
service industry perspective on the church, right? Which is also quite pervasive in today's world. I heard a pastor in Texas named Austin Fisher recently say that, uh, of course, hospitality is a key mark of Christian faithfulness. I think we all would uh, agree with that. In fact, this entire series that we're working through uh, during the month of January, we are trying to think about the different aspects of the church, trying to consider the different aspects of our purpose as a local congregation through the lens of hospitality. So, of course, we would agree that hospitality is a key mark of Christian faithfulness, but Fisher went on to say that that churches are not in the customer service business. And if we start to view the church as just providing this service, uh, we will eventually begin to compromise on parts of our purpose. And and I think there, there are a couple of reasons for that. First of all, if it's just a product or a service that we are consuming as a part of the the congregation, as soon as it no longer fulfills that perceived need, well, we can leave. Secondly, if I'm a consumer of a product or service, eventually I'm going to start viewing it as somebody is always giving to me and I am always receiving because I'm the consumer. I am the one taking advantage of this product or this service. And there's no obligation for me to sort of return some of those favors. So obviously there are problems if we start viewing the church through that lens. And we could even think about if we leave here today and go to my small group is having lunch today after this service. If we go to a restaurant and we order our food and eat it and then pay for the food that we've eaten. But before we leave, if I run back into the kitchen and say, well, I'm, I'm going to wash my dishes before, I'm probably going to be arrested or banned from that restaurant. I'm not supposed to go back into the kitchen, right? So, so it's problematic, though, if we begin to view the church as just another customer service industry establishment. The church is sort of this back and forth reciprocal community where there is push and pull. Sometimes I'm the one receiving. Sometimes I'm the one giving. Sometimes it's a little bit of both at the same time. I think the section that we're going to read out of Romans chapter 12 today, I think Paul implicitly provides an argument against both of those first two misconceptions about the church. So let's take a look. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Romans 12, verse 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So Paul makes his appeal. It's a fairly clear appeal. He says, present your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. But I think a commitment to sac- sacrificial living is not only a means of worship. It is that. But in the context of the instruction that Paul is going to provide momentarily, a willingness to sacrifice 
It is a spiritual act of worship, but it is also the foundation for membership in any body. And that is a process that is certainly going to require transformation or the renewal of our minds to even begin to see the value in that type of sacrificial living. To be willing to sacrifice in ways that are meaningful for somebody else and not just me. Because I can sacrifice in a way that is ultimately selfish, with selfish motives. There, there are a host of examples of this. Maybe a common one would be exercise. Exercise is definitely a sacrifice, especially for somebody as out of shape as I am. But the benefits, at least the direct benefits of exercise, are primarily personal. But sacrificing for the sake of for the betterment of somebody else, when I am not going to see any noticeable benefits that that sacrifice brings to my life, that's an altogether different proposition. So we continue reading in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So Paul continues, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. And I don't think Paul is suggesting this lifestyle of extreme self-flagellation or constant unhealthy personal criticism where it's, this constant monologue in our heads of how we aren't measuring up and how, how we aren't quite reaching the goal. Rather, I think it's simply this sober analysis, a measured accounting of myself in the context of a community, of course, because I can't be separated from the community. It seems as though Paul suggests that I can't understand myself apart from the community. So we have several things going on in this passage. First of all, the the church is not comprised of clones. Uniqueness, according to Paul, is not stripped away entirely because the members obviously don't all have the same function. The different parts of the body have unique gifts, unique talents and passions, and even interests. And attachment to the body does not strip all of that individuality away, at least not entirely. However, being grafted into the body of Christ does change or should change our understanding of our individuality. Paul says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Why? Because you're not the only one that matters. You're a part of a body. And your health, your success, your thriving, your well-being is interconnected with and dependent on the thriving, the well-being of other members of the body. This is a, a rather radical claim that Paul is making. But what's best for me in any given situation, because I'm a part of the body of Christ, may not be the action I should always take. Because I'm not only responsible 
for me. This is something that has plagued the human race since the beginning. We could think of that story of Cain and Abel that's told in Genesis, right? Cain becomes jealous of his brother Abel, murders him, and when confronted about this in the story, God asks, where's your brother? What's going on? And Cain responds, well, how in the world would I know? I'm not my brother's keeper. And I think we have a tendency to continue to be guided by that same question. Am I my brother or am I my sister's keeper? Am I responsible for them? No, of course not. We are individuals responsible for ourselves. And, and that's a fine position to take, of course, unless we are Christians. Because our identity isn't understood exclusively in individualistic terms. Because, as Paul says here, we are members one of another. We are members one of another. Let's continue reading. Verse 5. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. You know, to some degree, I think at times we understand our identity in relation to other people, maybe in relation to a spouse or children. For instance, I am the husband of Nanette. I am the father of Cora and Eloise. Or maybe in relation to parents, I am the son of Barbara and Gary. Or, or to a friend, I'm a friend of so-and-so. So we, we at times do understand ourselves in relation to other people, but, but I think a lot of times we do resist that notion because to understand our identity in relation to another human being is going to limit my freedom to certain degrees. And by and large, we typically don't like to have our freedom impinged upon. But what I want to suggest today, and what I think Paul is getting at with the use of this body metaphor in relation to the church, is that you are not you without others. You are not you without those sitting around you today, at least not in any way that is intelligibly Christian. I am not me. I am not the Christian me without other people. Theologian Kevin Van Hooser put it like this. We talked about him last week, but we'll return to him. I think he has a lot of good stuff to say in this conversation. He said, Christian identity... The role disciples have been called to play requires being with others. It takes two or three gathered in Christ's name fully to represent him. It takes a company. I think this is one of the, the potential downfalls of calling a group of Christian friends that get together the church. I mean, in one sense, that is true. Where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there with them. But I think in another important sense, it falls short of a robust theology of the church. This is why. 
Because the church is not just my group of Christian friends. The church is a gathering where there are going to be people there that it's hard for me to love. The church is a gathering where there's going to be somebody that I had a conflict with a couple of years ago, and I'm going to have to face them week after week and learn how to reconcile those differences we may have. So in a very real way, I am not me. I cannot become who I need to become without you. Because learning how to reconcile with somebody that I have a difficult time loving, that is an important process in my personal development, and I can't do that alone. And I can't just do that with my really close-knit, small group of close friends. I need those outside of that closer-knit, smaller community in order to find and live into a flourishing life. So we all have a role to play in this process of a thriving community. We need others within the community, not just our close friends. Like our conversation last week about mission, I don't have the option of becoming a Christian and deciding, well, yes, I will take my personal salvation out of this deal, but I don't really have much interest in sacrificing for the sake of the larger community. I'll take my personal salvation, but I, I don't care all that much about finding my role in helping a body thrive. I want to suggest that every one of us, when we attach ourselves to Christ, we also, by necessity, attach ourselves to his body, the church. And we must then ask, what is my role? How can I contribute to the health and thriving the life of the church? Because I have something to offer. And it's not going to be the same as the, the person sitting by me, because we are unique, we, we have different skills and passions, but I have something to contribute. I have something that has been planted in me by the giver of all good things. So as Paul says, maybe your gift is something dramatic. Maybe it's something noticeably spiritual and undeniably supernatural, something like prophecy. And Paul says, if so, use that in proportion to your faith or if it's something much less noticeable but equally critical to the life of the body, something like service, Paul says, well, then serve. And we could go through this list, teaching, exhortation, generosity, leadership, acts of mercy, maybe something that's not mentioned in this list. The point is find your gift and use it. From a Christian perspective, those gifts have been given to us by God, not exclusively for my benefit, but for the well-being of the body. And it's not about perfection in your gift. This is something that I wrestle with. It's not about withholding your gift until you know that you're not going to make mistakes. No, we will make mistakes. We will use our gifts imperfectly. We will always use our gifts 
imperfectly. A lifetime of working in that gift to serve the body is not going to lead to perfection. There's always going to be somebody that is better than I am at any particular gift I happen to have, but that's not what the gifts are about. They're not about position or or ranking within the body. No, they're about each of us being able to minister in particular situations to somebody that happens to have a need for that ministry. So don't let your lack, your lack of perfection, your lack of confidence, don't let your lack keep you from playing your part. Because I believe there's somebody, quite likely somebody in this room today, right now, who could directly benefit from what you have to offer. Maybe a gift, a skill, spiritual wisdom, or maybe something tangible. And as a member of the body, while of course you can't do everything, you can do something for somebody. You can contribute in a meaningful way for the health and life of the body. Eugene Peterson wrote this about the church. He said, church is where this wisdom, if you think about the wisdom we talked about last week in Ephesians, this embodiment of the knowledge and revelation of God, The church is where that takes place, where the resurrection is practiced. He said, church is the workshop for turning knowledge into wisdom, becoming what we know. I like that concept of the church as a workshop. The church is a workshop. This place is a workshop. And not so much a place where an expert craftsman is is doing their work, but a place where there's experimentation and exploration. We are all just trying. We're working, but we will fail. We won't use our gifts perfectly, and consequently, it also means that at times there's going to be pain in this community. It's obviously not the goal. We we hope to avoid unnecessary pain as as much as possible, but if we're going to have long-term committed community, there will be pain along the way. We will hurt one another, hopefully not intentionally, but it's bound to happen. And my encouragement to you is don't let that pain or that hurt or that conflict you experience, that that you will inevitably experience in any committed community, don't let that make you give up on community altogether. Because we can't become who we need to become without those sitting around us. We can't understand ourselves appropriately without those sitting around us. We need other people. So yes, we will be hurt by others, and unfortunately, we will probably hurt others. And when we do, we hope to deal with that in a Christ-like manner. We hope to make amends and seek restoration But again, this is a workshop. It's a training grounds of sorts. Nothing here is going to be flawless, but we are seeking to restore and develop and grow and become. Always learning, always growing, always being patient with one another, always figuring out what it means to be committed to other people. 
learning how to forgive, learning how to love our enemies. And sometimes our enemies are not far away. Sometimes they're right here close to us. Sometimes we're rubbing shoulders with them. We're learning how to forgive. We're learning how to love our enemies, always discovering ways to resolve conflict, to restore, and to love in a Christ-like manner. So this morning, my, my simple encouragement to you is to consider your place. Consider your place as a member of the body of Christ. What is your role? What do you have to offer, to bring to the body, to help the body of Christ thrive, to be healthy? What is your contribution? What is your connection to that process? And I think one of the ways that we practically, hopefully, every week are, are thinking about this and drawn into this application is by gathering every week around this table. This table that we gather around today, this meal that we share, it's central in our understanding of who we are as the people of God in a variety of ways. We'll, we'll talk about this more in coming weeks, but one of the reasons I think this practice is such an integral part of who we are as a people is that it is a practice of hospitality. Every week we are drawn into this practice of hospitality where we are learning how to be hospitable to others just as God is hospitable with us. We respond to the hospitality of God who welcomes and invites us to himself we do that individually, in some sense, yes, of course, but we also do it communally. We come up here together as the people of God. We don't do this alone. This communal aspect of the Lord's table cannot be downplayed. This is stressed by Paul time and time again, especially in 1 Corinthians 11. We're reminded that if we attach ourselves to Christ which is what we are doing if we come to this table. If we are partaking in this meal, we are confessing that we have a need for Jesus and we are desiring to attach ourselves to Christ. But we understand implicitly as we share in this meal that if we attach ourselves to Christ, we are also attached to his body, to the church. Amen. Kevin, if you want to come up, as we prepare to share in communion, and Lucas, if you'd join me as we prepare to serve, I want to read the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So this is just the chapter right before he's stressing the communal aspect of the Lord's table. I want to read this, just a couple of verses, and then say a prayer for us. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. He said, the cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Would you stand this morning? I want to say a prayer for us, and then I'd invite you to the table of the Lord. We'll make two lines down the center aisle. 
As you arrive at the front, there will be somebody here with the bread and with the cup, and the words will be spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our only Savior, the Prince of Peace, give us grace to take heart the grave dangers we are in through our many divisions. Deliver your church from all enmity and prejudice and everything that hinders us from godly union. As there is one body and one spirit and one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, so make us all to be of one heart and of one mind united in one holy bond of truth and peace, of faith and love, that with one voice we may give you praise. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God in everlasting glory. Amen. Amen. Would you join us at the table today?